What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Paraj with Panoramic Ventures. Panoramic recently debuted with a mission to fund companies in the Southeast, Midwest, and other regions across the country where opportunities are often overlooked. In his role, Paraj focuses on sourcing and evaluating pre-seed, seed, and Series A deals, and he also shares his thoughts through writing, which we've linked below. In this talk, we discuss surrounding yourself with the right people, optimizing for the number of bats as an investor, avoiding competition and doubling down on overlooked founders, and the secondary effects of entrepreneurship becoming a more popular choice of work. Yo, everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. You got the homie Faraj in here from uh, a new super dope firm, Panoramic Ventures, with uh, some pretty famous entrepreneurs that I'll let let Faraj break down once we get into it. But yo, thanks for kicking it with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Super excited. For sure. I mean, with that, man, let's dive right in. You want to do two minutes or less, a little bit of background on yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Praj. I'm an early stage investor at Panoramic Ventures, primarily focused on seed investing. I grew up in India, went to school near Philly, grew up in India in this middle-class family. Nobody in my family had ever left the country. Just bust my ass to really find my way to the US and went to school, had no idea what venture is. I actually wanted to do management consulting until I actually did it and realized I hate this and never want to do this again. And broke into sort of startups, interned in in Silicon Valley, all four years of college really loved entrepreneurship and fell in love with just working with startups and starting my own company, started a company on campus, grew it to about a few hundred users, realized, Hey, I need money to grow this. I'm a broke college kid. And that's when I really understood how the venture landscape works, how venture capital works and how there was really no venture capital around me. So took a step back, started my school's first accelerator because my school really wanted to support me, but didn't really have, a venture ecosystem in place to be able to actually support me beyond just being my cheerleader. So I actually helped them launch their accelerator. That's pretty much how I learned the world of venture, built my network of early stage VCs and, and, and startups and founders. And then when I graduated college, I actually ended up moving out west to San Francisco to, to an early stage venture fund doing early stage ARVR, digital media entertainment type investing. Did that for a few years, wanted more operational expertise moved to a fund out in Boston doing really cool investor operator stuff. So we would invest in a few companies and then actually join them as the earliest employees doing everything from strategy, operations, marketing, did that for another couple of years. And then the timing was just the stars aligned and Panoramic wanted somebody to come and run seed. And it was the perfect timing for me to make the jump. So moved from frozen Boston to sunny Atlanta and, and, and now loving uh, being at Panoramic. Okay. For sure. For sure, man. Look, your story is, is very similar to, to a lot of us uh, young folks in the venture space. We took this not unorthodox because there is no unorthodox path in, but we love that you broke directly into BC out of college, similar to Clay and I. And uh, but more interestingly, that you did both internships and runs as an entrepreneur. Can you talk a little bit more about those uh, experiences and how they really sparked interest in you converting full-time to investor? And then from there, can you talk a little bit about if you would do venture again versus starting your own companies or joining startups? Yeah, so my pretty much 
foray into startups was I'm, I went to school in Lancaster, which is Amish County, which is literally the opposite of Silicon Valley in that they don't use any technology. So as 18, 19 year old trying to break into tech, it was a different scene. So I was just out on AngelList, just trying to hustle my way, cold emailing Silicon Valley founders in, in with just strategy recommendations. And thankfully, a lot of them responded to me. And that's how I pretty much built my initial network. So when I actually ended up moving out west, that's when I really firsthand got just the infectious energy of, of Silicon Valley, uh, of San Francisco, and what it means to be in the tech landscape and the startup landscape and just absolutely fell in love with it. So I ended up spending all four years there and I knew I wanted to be in the startup world. Now, whether that meant working at a startup, starting my own company, or at that point, I didn't know venture investor, but now looking back or a venture investor, but I'm very independent and I'm very ambitious. So my first priority was obviously starting my own company. And I did that in college. I started a company called Simply Stow, which was a peer-to-peer -peer storage marketplace, like an Airbnb for storage. And now it feels like everybody's doing that. But back then I was one of the early ones, uh, I think. But when I built that out, you have such a high where you're truly building out products that customers need and you're constantly fulfilling every single problem they have in, in, in a variety of different ways. And you're constantly seeing improvement on such short feedback cycles. And because you're able to do that, it is such a tremendous value add both for your local community that you're serving as well as you as the person who's doing that. So I knew I wanted to be in that. I just didn't know I could do that across multiple companies while being an investor. So as somebody who has almost shiny object syndrome and that, hey, anytime something cool, new thing happens, I want to be involved. I found instead of being the startup founder who starts a new company every six months and can never be relied upon by investors or advisors because you don't know if this person's going to stick through and actually build this company into something major. I realized a more interesting way of doing that same thing where I get to work, work across industries, learn across uh, verticals about new industries, new opportunities, new problems, new solutions was to become an investor. And that, that's what I ended up doing. And I love it because now some days I'm spending time in fintech. Some days I'm spending time in B2B SaaS and healthcare IT, things that 18, 19 year old Paraj had no idea about. And now I'm investing in companies, really digging deep into and getting a broad range of exposure. So looking back, I, I think I would probably still want to start a company. I think at the end of the day to really build a career in venture, it is helpful to have some operational experience, whether it is starting your own company or at least being able to empathize with founders because literally VC is not as hard as running a company and it never will be. And to be able to truly understand what it takes to run a company, it's helpful to have that context as you're making investment decisions because oftentimes investors can be stuck in this bubble where, oh, we're the VCs, we're the ones in power. Sure, maybe, but that's not how it is or how it should be in that the real value is being created by the founders and they're the ones who are actually out there day in, day out, literally grind, nose to the grindstone building this thing. And to actually have that context through some type of experience is generally helpful. So long-term, if I could, when the right opportunity strikes, I would probably still want to start a company, but for now, I'm very happy being an investor. Makes sense. One question on that is from a learning perspective at that age, and you're still like super fresh off the slopes, 18, 19, 20, et cetera. Would you, what do you think you learn more from? Do you think you learn more from starting your own companies or internships? Or do you think that, not, I think the answer is obvious that you learn more from starting companies, but do you think that the internships were necessary for you to get some hard skills? Or would you say, screw that, everybody just keep starting stuff until you're ready to go figure out your thing? Yeah, I think what's important in there is having some guardrails or having some frame of reference or somebody who can guide you in the right direction. 
internships are a good way to do that because there are people above, like above you in the hierarchy who can actually guide you and mentor you. What happens sometimes with people that are starting companies that end up don't learning as much is because they start companies, they, they either you know, grow too fast or fail too quickly, but they fail to really take away the learnings that they should from it because there was nobody to point them in the right direction that, hey, this is what you really should be learning. A lot of founders I meet or a lot of people who want to start companies that have tried starting companies in the past, when their company fails or, or they have an event that happens or their product fails, they sometimes walk away with the thinking that, hey, the market's not ready or, or the customers don't know what they're doing. Like, and sometimes that is true, but, but that's not always the case. So if you walk away with the wrong learnings, you really didn't learn anything. So mm-hmm. having that framework where there's somebody through an internship where you can actually see how they learn, first of all, but also they'll help you extract value from things that are happening to you. That is helpful in an internship context. And same thing when I start, like when you start a company, it's important to make sure that you have a certain set of advisors and investors around you, especially when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, which is what it feels like all these young entrepreneurs are these days. You need to have that level set experienced person around you who can make sure that you're actually taking away the right learnings and not just the wrong learnings. Makes perfect sense. Perfect, perfect sense. Let's fast forward a bit. So now you jump from into a few really interesting venture roles, similar to myself. And uh, I can give my thoughts on this, but I'm very curious as to what your takeaways are in regards to working across firms. You've worked across stage, geography, et cetera. Can you highlight the differences between them and preferences, downsides, et cetera? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've learned across you know, with with the three different experiences that I've had is that the most valuable for me at this stage of my career is just getting more chances at bat, just having more opportunities to invest and having a broader funnel from which to learn. What that means is just having more companies to invest in. And when you have a lot of companies to invest in, you really get exposure to a wide variety of situations, scenarios, transactions in business models, industries, market dynamics. And there's just a vast amount of learning in a short amount of time, which when you're early in your career as a VC, especially someone like me who doesn't have a lot of operational experience under his belt, that's particularly helpful and has has helped me learn really fast. Now, what that meant across the three places I've worked is, I started off at this fund called Candela Partners in San Francisco, where I was writing pre-seed checks in AR, VR, digital media entertainment type companies. The advantage there was obviously writing a lot of checks, which was super valuable. The disadvantage there, when you're investing at that early of a stage, is that it's less of a venture role in that you're not really involved with the company across its full life cycle. You're really only involved in the first one or two rounds. By the third round, you probably lost information rights. You're not really that close with the founder. By the fourth round, you're really a, a byline on the cap table. So you're really not able to grow with the company and watch the founder grow as closely as you would like to, especially if you eventually have broader GP level aspirations for an investor. So that was the downside of being of writing pre-seed checks where like, yes, I'm writing a lot of checks, but I'm not spending as much time with the company where I'm learning how to really scale the company. Yes, I know what it takes to start one. And yes, I know what it takes to get to a seed or a series A, but I don't know what really happens beyond that. The second firm that I worked at got a ton of operational experience, which was phenomenal, but that also really showed me the portfolio side of it. It's like, hey, Yes, it's the opposite of what I believe today to be true in that, hey, write a lot of checks and, and that's the best way to learn. There we were doing the opposite. We were really writing a few number of checks and really going deep, which helped me from an operational perspective, but, but goes back to the same things. I'm not getting enough chances at bat to really get breadth of knowledge. 
I did get a chance to go deep on digital media entertainment and sports media entertainment and stuff, which I think was super valuable. But for somebody who eventually wants to be a GP, wants to run his own fund, you just need some level of breadth, unless you're working for a general catalyst or an Andreessen where every single vertical has their own partner and you can be like, hey, I do like multiplayer gaming for casual games and that's my thing. But really for smaller funds, you really can't do that. So you need that breadth. So Panoramic actually ended up being the perfect opportunity for me because it's a multi-stage fund where we have the ability to write later stage checks, both at the A and the B and really work with the company closely throughout its life cycle. But I'm writing these relatively higher volume seed checks where it's early. I'm going to get a lot of chances at bat. I'm going to see a lot of opportunities across industries, but then also stay with the company through the seed, through the A, through the B and as it scales. So I can really learn both, hey, how good am I at decision-making? But once I do make these decisions, what other decisions have to happen downstream for the investment to be successful? Because just me picking a good startup doesn't really mean anything. It's just step one. 100%. Love that, brother. Look, let's, let's dive a bit into Panoramic Ventures, you all's new endeavor out in Atlanta. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit about one BIP or, or the, the firm that has now become Panoramic, and then talk a little bit about how that partnership came together with Paul Judge. And uh, I just want to take a moment and shout out Paul Judge and say thank him or thank you to him for impact he's had on culture in Atlanta, the African-American community, and how many of my people he's inspired. So I ran into him not too long ago at a, a meeting of African-American leaders in tech, and he's just, he's still doing his thing and, and pushing things forward. So uh, congrats on that partnership, and I would love to cover what I just spoke on. Yeah, so... Some of the information is secondhand because I haven't been here for a, for a very long time. But from what I hear, this partnership has actually been in the works for two years now, two plus years now. And essentially the story is we were BIB Capital. Uh, we were, the origin story was 15 years ago and we split off from, we have another wing, which is BIP Wealth, which is a wealth management side of the house. And when we split off from there, we were doing the private investments. There really built our brand over 15 years being the most active investor in the Southeast. But as we started growing, the fund started growing our aspirations started growing, but also the impact we wanted to have started growing. And as we did that, we obviously were very close with Paul Judge. Paul Judge was also doing these phenomenal investments through TechSquare Labs and his vision for what he wanted to accomplish and our vision at BIP, what we wanted to accomplish were very similar. Uh, and we just had very complementary skill sets. So it just makes sense to join forces and really go at it together. So it's been two years in the making. The thinking was that, hey, yeah, Paul Judge, we really double down on our thesis of investing in overlooked, underrepresented founders and in, in, in overlooked, underrepresented geographies, because less than 14% of money, of VC money is really going into the Midwest and the Southeast, and less than 3% is going into women and minorities, which really makes no sense. It's funny because VCs all the time talk about red, like red oceans of markets too competitive, and yet they continue investing in the red ocean of Silicon Valley, where every third person is a VC. So if you're a VC firm, trying to invest in those same founders that everybody's trying to invest in, that's really not a blue ocean. So we decided that, hey, talent is everywhere, uh, opportunity is not, and, and that just doesn't make any sense, especially if you forget the social impact side of it, you just focus strictly from a fiscal and financial upside side of it. There's this over, overlooked market, which has tremendous upside potential in it. There's no competition with other VC firms in that area. It's just a no-brainer for any rational VC firm. So we just really doubled down on that to, for our focus for Panoramic Fund 5. And, and that's what we're really doubling down on. We're doing a lot more at Seed. We had done Seed investments in the past, but they've been ad hoc. We recognize that, hey, a lot of these overlooked geographies don't necessarily have that early stage venture ecosystem that they need to even get them to a Series A. And so 
we launched a seed program through which we're writing these early stage seed checks. And through that, plus our opportunity and ability to actually go into these overlooked geographies and actually make a difference through both our investment and dollars, but also the in-house expertise we've built where we can actually help build these companies alongside these founders, we can really make a difference. And, and that's what we're really trying to do. Love that, brother. I also love that you are also targeting universities <clears throat> and their academic R&D departments. Like, I think that you all are really hitting all the untapped spaces, which I think differentiates you all as a firm and makes sense with the talent you all have around the table. So keep crushing that. Why ATL? Why did you all position the original VIP in ATL? Why today? Why not expand? And then, yeah, man, what are some of the, the strong vertical suits or trends and uh, things that you've seen emerge out of ATL recently? Yeah. And some of the original thinking for BIP was very similar in that our founders had some experience, had a lot of experience out West, and they really wanted to recreate that entire ecosystem here in Atlanta, which was home for them. And, and that's why some of the original genesis for BIP happened. And obviously over time, both our influence on the ecosystem, but the ecosystem itself has really grown by leaps and bounds. Like we've had phenomenal companies coming out of here. We have phenomenal executives that, that are all based in Atlanta. We've had companies like large blue chip companies expanding their region presence in, in the region. So overall, the ecosystem itself is in, has been expanding. But the reason I picked Atlanta, which is a question I'm better equipped to answer because I know everything about it, is I spent my time, I went to school, like I said, in a sort of like a non-target southeastern Pennsylvania spent some time out West, really got a sense for what that ecosystem's and no question that ecosystem has had a leg up historically because of just the density of talent and density of opportunity. But that doesn't mean that the opportunity should be limited to that region. Uh, and so I've always wanted to recreate that in, in, in other regions that have the talent, that have the ability, that have the opportunity, but just haven't had the structure to be able to take full advantage of it. I did Boston, but then Atlanta it was a no brainer because Strong tech talent, like between Georgia Tech, Georgia State, Emory, there's just such a big abundance of smart young people who are, especially if you are a software investor, that are coming out, that have the ability to join early stage startups, start their own companies, and have a technical edge within a very small geography, uh, in a very small radius. So high density of technical talent, robust early stage ecosystem. So Georgia Tech obviously has phenomenal early stage resources. There's a bunch of early stage investors and angels because like, like I said, these are all executives who either held senior leadership positions or sold companies and now have an abundance of capital and they're writing angel checks. So lots of early stage investors, Panoramic being one of them now, but also CreateX, ATDC, Techstars uh, uh, has a deep presence in Atlanta, TechSquare Labs, which is what Paul Judge was doing. So strong talent coming out of colleges, Lots of early stage investors who write these smaller early stage checks. And then you layer on top of that just the amount of like exits we've had recently. Like we've had phenomenal exits and IPOs and exits in Atlanta, which means more capital that the overall pie of capital in Atlanta is increasing. So is the overall pie of talent. So is the overall pie of experienced executives. So it's a no brainer for all three to overlap and give rise to a phenomenal venture ecosystem. And plus, if you really want to be in a world where people travel, and obviously we're not traveling right now, but Atlanta is like a short flight away from pretty much anywhere on the East Coast and most places in the South. So big geographic cover there as well. Yeah. Also, just the culture of Atlanta is huge. And I got to call you out, man. You forgot to mention the, the Spellhouse energy. You got some of the brightest business in 
hundred percent. Yeah, I, I'm just new to Atlanta, so I don't fully, I don't fully know all the players because I'm still new. I'm still learning in Atlanta, but that's one of the things. It's like the reason I didn't like San Francisco as much is because how homogenous it is, in that everybody's doing the same things, interested in the same topics, and and just living a very similar life. What I love about Atlanta, and I've only been here, you know, six months and haven't explored as much as I would have liked to, but is that. There is so many things going on. There's a vibrant music scene. There's a vibrant media and art scene. There's a vibrant tech scene. There's a vibrant fintech SaaS. Because there's so much diversity of interest just going on here, when you overlap all these different types of people who are interested in different types of things, creativity is much higher. And, and, and essentially what that means is when you face with a problem, the solutions that come out of Atlanta would also be much more creative because they'll have some element of music, some element of art, some element of just diverse interests that the founders will end up having simply by virtue of living in Atlanta. And that's, I think, is a major competitive advantage as well. True. And I think big point on SF is you're right. Everyone's leaving. It's obvious. Some people who just don't want to leave are just like coming up with all these excuses as to why. But I think just as a young person and like making bets on where people just from a psychological perspective want to be in the world and from a financial perspective, if you're not rich, want to be in the world is not there, which makes me think that places like ATL, Miami, Texas, Tennessee, et cetera, are just going to continue to be on the rise. You have any insights on uh, who you think will be some of the long-term winners there outside of Atlanta? Yeah, I think what's interesting about this entire ecosystem, and I'm curious to see what happens post-COVID, is just how easy Zoom has made to actually have some of these conversations, both if you're a company trying to recruit talent, but also if you're a company trying to raise money from founders. So I think overall, I think in general, any place that isn't Silicon Valley, New York, or Boston is going to win because as people get more comfortable, but also more used to Zoom, sure, they might still want to hop on a flight to, to meet their newest team member or, or win a deal. But the geographical barriers of finding investors near you has gone away, which means the opportunity, the opportunities are just expanding. Like you could be in Iowa, like we just invested in a company in Iowa. And so literally like we could be investing anywhere in the world or anywhere in the US. So pretty much it's a net win for anybody that's not in San Francisco, New York or Boston. And then you, then you can actually layer on quality of life. Then you can talk about, hey, where do I want to live? Not because I have to because of my job, not because I have to, to raise money. Where do I genuinely want to live? Because I like snowboarding or because I like skiing or, or surfing or whatever that is, that's when you can actually, actually have a full work-life decision on where you want to live and not just pick because, oh, these are all in San Francisco, so I have to live in San Francisco, even if I have to pay $4,000 a month to live there. Who really wants to live in, in, in San Francisco? Let's keep it real. I don't, I don't know. Okay, okay. So we're big fans of funds that, that serve the best entrepreneurs from untapped spaces. And y'all are just like we were talking about earlier, y'all aren't just doing that for the minorities and underserved po populations, but also like geographies and university research communities. Can you talk about some of the advantages you've seen come out of doing this approach? What are some of the like, tangible upsides that you've been doing this for a short time, but like, how do you feel differently about this from the other places that, or the other seats you've been in? Yeah, first of all, I'll just talk strictly, VCs like to talk numbers, but from a strict perspective, it's the same thing. Like I said, if competition's lower, which, which is what it is right now in a lot of these overlooked geographies and overlooked founders, there's not many firms that are trying to reach those. And, they, and even if they are, they're not doing a good job of reaching them. If that is the case and competition's low, as a result, pricing is low. So valuations are a lot more 
manageable and palatable and attractive. So strictly if you're talking, hey, I'm an LP, I only care about numbers, that makes sense because the valuations are lower, which means we can actually own more of the company for a cheaper price, which means when the company has an equivalent success as the San Francisco company, we'll own more of it and actually make more money. So that just from a basic numbers perspective, it just makes sense. But even beyond that, it is it transcends how the company grows overall. Uh, because if you're a top company, it's easier to hire top talent because you're not competing with a million other companies. And over time, all, all these geographies will get there, hopefully if we do our job well. But today, there, there's co competition for talent is low because you can really truly get the best in every geography because you are the best in every geography. And so talent is easier to get. Money is easier to get. You really have the attention of the location and all these geographies really are investing a lot of time and resources to actually developing their venture ecosystem, which cannot be said that, which cannot be said about San Francisco at all, given recently what's going on there. But all these, so you have governmental support, you have venture support and financing support, as well as top talent support. So between the three of them, there's the opportunity and odds of success are so much higher. Also because the costs are low. So the costs are significantly lower. So your burn is lower. So your cash out date is much farther ahead, which just gives you more time to build and figure it out. So across all, across the spectrum, your odds of success just increase when you're in that geography. And we just want to be the inflection point. We just want to be your partner to help you just jump off and really take off the ground and, and really get there. Got you. Got you, brother. I think you're spot on. And we've talked to some of our folks out in Utah. We've had incredible returns. Folks out in Chicago who are killing it. You all who are killing it. And even like LA, which is not really like the kind of markets that we're talking about, but like still not SF. Yeah. And it just makes total sense. So outside of the three buckets that you all are investing in, where can you, if you are a new firm or if you're panoramic, looking to raise the next funder, expand a little bit, where are the next untapped spaces? Yeah, so what's interesting also, and those are like two, two like very different ends of the spectrum, but first one is you have to go more upstream. Like people are becoming more entrepreneurial and entrepreneurship is becoming a bigger part of our cultural consciousness than ever before. Like I didn't, I don't even think I had heard the word entrepreneurship growing up, but now there are these 13, 14 year olds making Twitter accounts with the bio, like two time entrepreneur. I'm like, I don't even, you're 12. What are you talking about? But yeah, so as entrepreneurship is becoming a bigger part of cultural consciousness, the ability of even younger people uh, who traditionally would have otherwise been written off that, okay, no way you can uh, run a company. And that is still true in other parts of the world. But in the US, US has always been a little entrepreneurial and that kids are, have jobs when they're teenagers, they're mowing lawns, they have to earn their stipend. You layer on top of that, the ability to actually start a company using very little money. You can do no code tools to actually build entire fully baked SaaS products. You can literally drop ship and, and, and sell. You can pretty much make your entire your own CPG brand pretty much overnight or within a weekend. So the ability to do that is expanding, which means the number of people who we should be okay with, not okay, but who we expect should be taking full advantage of this should also expand, which includes people who are right now 12, 13, 14, 15, who otherwise, there's no venture firm out there who's saying, hey, I only want to invest in teenagers, teenage entrepreneurs, because we don't know if they have uh, enough experience or even enough interest in their particular product to really build and scale it over time. I just don't know if that makes sense in the next five years. I think over time, you're going to have to go a little bit more upstream and really start investing in some of these early founders. Like the Stripe founders were teenagers when they started Stripe. And sure, they're on the older end, but 
massive company, companies are going to be started by people who are 15, 16, 17. And I think VCs are really going to have to spend time looking in there. And it's going to be tough because VCs are going to have to spend more time with these founders. So you can't really spray and pray. You're going to act, ha actually have to mentor and incubate and actually help them get up to speed from a what they need to know type of thing. But I think it's going to, it's going to yield valuable returns. The other side of it is the other end of the spectrum. People who've been disenfranchised from, from the employment ecosystem and they need to get back into it. And the only option they have right now is to get entry-level jobs in, in blue-collar positions when entrepreneurship is an equally viable idea for them, but there's no real opportunity for investment. So this might mean people who are incarcerated. This might mean people who are like mothers who've been out of the workforce for a few years when they were taking care of their kids and they want to get back. Their option shouldn't only be, hey, I need to get a job. Their option should be, hey, I want to start a company who's going to come fund me. And yes, Panoramic would fund them, but somebody who's really focused on helping them both get back into the workplace through entrepreneurship would be incredibly valuable. Agreed. Agreed. Someone uh, needs to tell Eric to extend uh, contrary capital beyond just college and hit the, hit the uh, top hundred high schools as well. Yeah. And especially in consumer social, like all the hot consumer social startups that have sold recently, and obviously none of them were high schoolers, but their entire audience demographic was high schoolers and, and teenagers, like TBH, for example, had a big exit and they were all just 12, 13, 14, 15 year old students. So if that's the target demographic. It only makes sense that, and so you say, hey, build for yourself, scratch your own itch, and then all the big exits are happening where the users are teenagers. So it makes sense that teenagers will start a company that scratches their own itch to have a big exit. I'm meeting more and more young folks, especially as I dive further into the Clubhouse universe and I've like partnered with my cousin who are, who's key influencer on Clubhouse. He has like a million five followers. He highlights all these young folks. Like more and more than we're making six figures, seven figures, doing consulting for Gen Z, doing rent. Like also like even here in Mexico, like I know the number one Facebook influencer in the world. They're doing like three, $4 million a month in revenue. Wow. These are like young people just love living their lives, figuring out new ways to do. And that's the other thing. Entrepreneurship doesn't only mean building a software company. You running a YouTube channel or being a Twitch streamer is also entrepreneurship. You're like a single creator who's really building their brand and creating value and creating content. And more people now want to be YouTubers than astronauts, which is how the world is today. And that's phenomenal. And that's another opportunity, which is people who are really going to, who's going to be the YC for creators? Who's really going to come in? The margins on those things are crazy. Exactly. So that's another <laughs> big opportunity. Man, I swear they have one bedroom. Their cost is one bedroom in an apartment that keep all their stuff. And then a whole bunch of really cheap toys that we buy at like the mega supermarket and Walmart here on Playa del Carmen. It's ridiculous. And they're making way more money than like many athletes. Yeah, because they're making SaaS revenue. It's almost like SaaS revenue because it's, it's pure subscription. So it's pure subscription. Your cogs are low. I used to stream on Twitch. So I know the space really well. And all of my friends ended up that actually grew big, moved to Phoenix, where the cost of living is extremely low. So the only thing you really have to spend is like your rent and food. But then you, once you get 1,000 plus subscribers paying you $4.99 a month, you're, it's, it's just pure margin. Doesn't make a difference. Doesn't make a difference anymore. But look, I mean, with that, man, I've been grilling you. Uh, I do this when we get on the phone, so you, you used to it. How about you take a moment to ask me and Clay some questions? Clay, you got to come out of the back cave. You got the first answer. So I, I will ask you both one thing. One thing that I've struggled with as I'm doing investing, and you obviously have spent a little bit more time than me. When you're doing early stage investing, 
how do you balance what the product is today versus what you think it could be versus what the founders think they could be? Because you also don't want to impose your vision on them because again, you're not the one running the company. How do you balance that when you're making a decision, especially early on? Jeez, it's a really good question. Um, I'm actually having to think on this one. We usually, we get someone to just ask us a softball question, but this is good. I think eliminating your own biases first is probably the first step in that. Like there's, we've talked about it pretty openly. Like there's certain sectors and verticals that are more interesting to each of us. And just like being conscious of those biases, like whether this is something that's personally interesting and like fits what you think is going to happen, trying to just eliminate that and try to be more objective when you, with your decision-making, if it's something that you have less depth on, I've typically just gone to try to find the right person or group of people to pick their brain on a subject. So I actually get like some more qualified opinions on it. I guess that sometimes I've run into issues of just getting access into the right groups of people, but I guess that becomes a little easier as your network expands and then tying that together with what the founder's vision of the product is, I think someone told me early on, I forget who, but you have to discount that 25% because their idealistic vision of the world rarely comes true. So you have to be like a little bit more realistic with it. So I don't know if that's like the, as straightforward as an answer as I could give, but I don't know. That's a couple approaches that have worked for me, but interested to hear what Tyler's got to say. Yeah, this is actually something that I think about a lot. So when I was at Point72 Ventures, we prided ourselves on understanding the founder's business more than anyone else in the world. So much so that we were effectively solving problems for their customers and then bringing them a solution. Like that was a big part of the strategy. Then I came to Great Point Ventures and I was working under one of the founders of Juniper and then Ray Lane who built Oracle. And I I was like, I'm killing it, I'm crushing it, whatnot. I'm letting these founders know that I know their business. I'm ideating with them, going back and forth. I'm like, man, how's my due diligence calls been going? Like, how y'all feel about it? They're like, honestly, pretty bad. And I'm like, wait, what? The founders love me. It doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, they're like, look, man, at the end of the day, it's not you who's building the business. It's them. That being said, there's a level of malleability that you want to measure and like how much impact you can have. But unless you're going to roll up your sleeves and build this company with them or based on how much information and vision you're putting out into the world, put it for them. We need to think about this based on writing a check into an existing wave of momentum. That being said, the best way for you to do that is to use the Socratic method where you ask questions that will lead to the answers that you want or you want them to reveal, or more importantly, don't ask anything uh, and just let them talk. And if you let people talk until they go silent, assuming they're being efficient and then ask questions after thinking on it a bit with the Socratic method in mind, you tend to get uh, a mix because you're imparting your vision in the questions you're asking if you can do that thoughtfully and they're giving you where they think things can be. And on the last pieces in terms of discounting both is you say, okay, cool. That's what you think. That's how you think about it relative to where I asked you to go. Now let me discount that by 70%. That I think that's probably the best, best means in my life of being disciplined and uh, measuring outcomes, disciplines, while also making sure that you can be aligned in an organic fashion versus forcing 
but especially once you become a sector uh, or vertical expert and you think yeah no that makes a lot of sense i really like how you both framed it both in terms of discounting as well as really investing in the wave of momentum it's like hey what is it today but also where is it going and combining them in a momentum figure and using that to make a decision i like that it's definitely a work in progress especially now that me and claire are in our own thing raising and, and going out to start doing investments for on behalf of the confluence community so we got to be thinking about this doubly because we won't have as much guidance outside of the community so that being said man clay why don't you take us out with some quick fire questions and we can wrap it up from there unless barrage has other questions at the end of that i actually have one more question as you're thinking about making your own investments through the Confluence vehicle. How are you thinking about the syndicate model versus the rolling fund model? Clay, you want to take that or should I? Probably you go first this time. Hi, it's the show. <laughs> so the way that we look at it is like, all everything that we're doing here is for and by the community. That being said, the more capital we can get from the community, the better in every syndicate so that our thousand plus and soon to be 2000 plus investors across call it now 800 something soon to be like 1500 funds can, can get economics. So while it's important for us to raise some capital to be able to guarantee a founders a minimum investment threshold, because the last thing you want is to promise it a, a, a founder that you're going to write a check for them, put them in front of, a thousand plus funds and then not be able to like get the money. And then it's like an embarrassment in front of a thousand funds instead of a brand for us. It's like we, we prefer to write a bare minimum check, let the community fill it. And then we take the rest or take pro rat or however we figure it out. What we are thinking of right now is present incredibly compelling deals that's sourced by the community for the community there. Cause there's not a single deal that our community doesn't see. Yeah. Uh, and we can just cherry pick the best ones because the whole model for confluence is like, give economics to the community, which they wouldn't get otherwise. If you're a junior, you might get anywhere from no percentage points to less than 1% on the six year clip with the average senior being two and a half years. So you really make no equity. Versus with us, you make 25%. So that gives us like an opportunity to get the best deals from the best funds. Then in regards to the community, putting up the capital, when we had 600 members in November, and now we're over double that, we put out a syndicate for 30% of the community and we're able to in 48 hours raise over, raise a million dollars. So we're not, yeah, we're not that concerned with being able to raise money. It's more so just like, all right, let's do this in the best way possible and help the most people possible. And uh, we've been putting together some really compelling documents that we'll share with the community soon. And again, man, it's for us, by us. We all gonna make some money on this. It's like me and Clay are intentionally giving away economics when we could try to go try to be selfish and raise our own phone on top of this. It doesn't really help us. We want to help you and lift you. And rolling funds, like maybe we'll do that, but it probably makes a little bit more sense for us to just raise something traditional just to support the checks that the community will be putting up collectively. No, that makes sense. I love how you're thinking about it. Thank you, brother. All right. Clay, you want to touch on that a little bit or you want to jump to the quick fire? Yeah, like really quickly, I can just jump in and give like my two cents here. But I think the issue with rolling funds, you're essentially asking people to pay a subscription fee for access to deal flow. The people that have been able to do that and actually secure capital on top of it are those that have built out 20, 25 year careers of investing and operating, which like is tough to replicate as 24, 25 year old kids. I don't know. I think like 
it could be an option, but it's probably not the best option for us right now. I think the syndicate opportunity allows everybody to play together a little bit more nicely. It's probably a little bit easier for capital get to um, get collected up rather than people to buy into the idea that you have better deal flow than them. I got to push back on play for a second. So I do think that like the value of our community could demand a subscription. I just don't like the angel is me taking the, a chunk of the equity that we could be giving back to the community. <laughs> That's the bigger problem. So <laughs> he's right. Uh, the other than I, I do think that the compost community is going hard in these streets. That's it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So cool. We can, uh, we can jump to the end here. So Paraj, we do these at the end. Let's see. We have five questions. I can't talk. Five questions meant to be answered in two sentences or less. We don't have a great hit rate on people actually answering them in two sentences or less, but we try to give those guide rails. So we'll just jump into the first one. So what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Lots of investors and, and experienced founders give the advice that, hey, launch your first product, get an MVP out, even if it's ugly. I disagree with that, especially in 2021, when the barrier to entry to make new products is extremely low, especially with no code tools, you can actually make them look beautiful. And the world is getting used to better looking products. So the so now there's really no excuse to launching even a basic product that doesn't look and feel phenomenal for the customer, because at the end of the day, you're building it for the customer. So no more ugly MVPs should really be a thing in 2021. Totally agree. I think move fast and break things kind of sucks and isn't really great advice. Like good design is just table stakes, as you said. There's, so there's literally no excuse anymore. Next one in the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? So I used to be a big multitasker and I used to think that made me somehow achieve more and, and be smarter and be more big brained, but really not that's not how it works. I realized that I work a lot more better not multitasking. So I've really changed my mindset and how I do work in 2021, where I really try to double down and do one thing at a time. And that has helped me actually get better at doing that one thing, but also has given me more time to spend and actually be more mindful doing the things that I love doing instead of only spending 10% of my attention doing those and only getting 10% of the benefit of it. I think that's good advice too. I used to be the same way and it just stressed me out. And I feel like I wasn't at my output was pretty much the same and it just ate away at my mental space. I think compression and actually focusing on the things that matter is it's really good advice. Next one, best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture. Yeah, it, this one's just fake it till you make it in that venture is a role that is hard to get into as a job, but is not hard to do on your own in that you can research companies, find companies you like, write memos on them and actually publish them online and get them read by smart people from around the world, which is pretty much about 80% of a VC's job. The only thing you maybe can't do is actually write a check yourself, which also might not be true anymore with syndicates. But even if you can't, just being able to find a company, articulate why you like it and being able to publish and share that with the world and showing the world that you can do about 80% of the work a VC does is a very easy way to, to break into the industry. Love it. Love it. Jumped ahead and skipped one earlier, but I'm coming back to it. Aside from just having to say no all the time, what is the worst part about venture? Yeah, I think venture is generally lonely uh, in that you're spending a lot of time by yourself and not necessarily too collaborative unless you're a larger firm with a larger investment team, but generally you're on your own finding deals, talking to founders, which is phenomenal, especially for an extrovert like me, but it's not necessarily building meaningful, deep relationships. Also because there's a 
power dynamic at play. And oftentimes that prevents true non-work related relationships from blossoming because there's obviously this big whole thing about, Hey, you can fund me. So that's been a challenge for me, just navigating being, just being lonely. Totally agree. We've, we've heard that answer a couple of times now and definitely relate. All right. Last one here. Who's a mentor that you want to give credit to? Yeah, I'll cheat a little bit here and say two. Uh, my first mentor uh, was Professor Brian Stinchfield at Franklin and Marshall, which is where I went to school. I actually was not even going to study business. And I actually took a random class with him because he used to be a counterterrorism person. And I took a counterterrorism class with him. And he just convinced me over the summer to just try his business class because he was the chair of the business department. And I took it, fell in love with it. And, and here we are where I'm literally, only, I don't even touch computer science. I don't even code anymore. And I'm only doing business stuff. Uh, so he's had a big impact on my life. And the other person is Tommy Leap, who was at Angelus. He does investing and he's an operator as well. He has been instrumental also in just helping me navigate my venture career, helping me navigate the venture scene in San Francisco and then beyond. It's funny. It's like these tiny things, but growing up in India, I didn't even negotiate job offers. So he literally helped me word by word, create a script, how to negotiate a job offer, which is like such a tiny thing for him. And it probably just took away a bunch of his time to do something basic, but that has such a profound impact on just where I am in my career. Love it. Love it. Look. It's been a blessing kicking in with you. You're one of the goats. You brought to own Atlanta and already do. And I'm going to kick it with you and party in Atlanta with you soon. So, yeah, <laughs> Thank you both. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I'll email you both separately. We need to be both need to all, we all need to catch up a little bit more. Cool. All right, brother. Thanks, Clay. Thanks, Tyler. Talk to you soon. See you, man. Thanks again to Faraj for coming on this week. And we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Faraj, we've linked his social info in the description below. You can also find his contact info in the directory. For next steps, if you're an investor and have not already signed up to join, we encourage you to check out our website at www.confluence.vc to submit your info to become a member. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to reach out directly either to Tyler at tyler at gpv.com or myself at clay at Hope to hear from you all soon.